is good. Amen? You can respond. It's okay. God is good. Amen? One of my favorite verses in Psalm 119, and if you have not taken in Psalm 119, I would highly encourage it. The um, it just makes you fall in love with God's word. But Psalm 119, 68, at least the first half of it says, you are good and do good. God is good and he does good. Uh, would you turn with me or open uh, with me to 1 John chapter 2. I told the first service, I always said that when there was a, a digital Bible that you could write in, uh, I would switch. And I've got a digital Bible, and I can write in it, and I haven't switched. And part of the reason for that is because the batteries never go dead in this. Uh, so I, I know it always works. But turn with me, if you would, to 1 John uh, chapter 2. And we're going to look at a large chunk of 1 John today. I'm going to start reading in chapter 2, verse 28, and read through chapter 3, verse 10. And we will pray. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again to turn our attention to you in prayer Asking, Lord, that you would make us a community of worshipers. But, Lord, that we would understand what worship truly is. That it is ascribing worth to something. And so, Lord, when we, uh, when we gather to not only sing your praise and ascribe worth to you that way, but to, to read your word and to pray and to hear uh, from your word, Lord, all of it describes worth. But not just here in this place, Lord, but in our daily lives. Lord, we ascribe worth to things when we read our Bibles or not, when we pray or not, when we uh, instruct our children in, in the faith or not. 
Lord, we, we ascribe worth to you in everything that we do. And so may we see that every act of our lives is an act of worship. Every act of our life uh, either declares you or something else to be worthy of our focus, time, attention. Lord, you have given us this world to be enjoyed as a good gift. And I pray that you would help us to keep us all uh, in that perspective. That we would not make idols of the things in this world, but that we would enjoy the things of this world as a good gift from you, our sovereign creator. Lord, we pray this morning also for Heritage Baptist, that our brothers and sisters there would uh, proclaim your worth, not only in worship, not only in righteousness, uh, but in, in word as well, that we and they would go out and share the gospel and, and, ta- and, and show by our lives that we believe you are worthy to be praised, not just by us, but by all people, to be forgiven, that they might be forgiven of their sins and join in the chorus of worshipers. Lord, we pray for our missionaries, Ted and Renati Rubesh. We praise you along with them for the time that we had with them. We were grateful to, uh, to you for their ministry through us. We're thankful to you for the time that they had in Germany and how good that was for them, Lord, and also that you have provided them with their visas through January. And as they go through the process of applying again, and they have to do so much more frequently right now than normal, we pray that you would just continue to grant them visas so long as you would keep them there to do the ministry. Lord, we pray with them also that you would help them to just have a a good time of connecting with their family while they're here in the States and that it would be uh, not only a blessing and restful time to them, but Lord, it it would be meaningful to the gospel. And Lord, we pray also that you would bring qualified Sri Lankan locals uh, back to that place to to preach the word and to, uh, to teach in the churches there as most of them leave and come minister in the West. Lord, we pray that you would raise up leaders who have a heart for Sri Lanka, who have a heart for the people, who desire to see the church grow and be healthy and to see sinners called to repentance and join the church in its worship. So Lord, would you uh, use them to that end uh, and any other means that you have there, other missionaries and certainly your word and your spirit to to draw people in. Lord, uh, may we have today Uh, open eyes to understand your word, soft hearts to obey it, but Lord, may we also have open mouths to share it. May may we, as we leave this place, uh, may the word sound forth from us into the world and and you might call sinners to repentance through it. Use us for your glory in whatever way you see fit, Lord, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Last weekend, we had the great privilege of having both of Jennifer's brothers come and uh, visit us. They both live here in Washington, and so on Saturday, uh, her youngest brother came, and we had a birthday party for Bradley, and then also for their oldest son, and we had a couple of different cakes, because they wanted different kinds of cakes, and then we bought a whole bunch of, like, Nerf bullets and had a gigantic Nerf war in the park back here. Uh, If you are out of Nerf bullets, you can probably find quite a bit still in the grass back there. I'm sure we did not recover them all. And then on Sunday after church, we got to spend time with Jennifer's. Jennifer's the oldest, but uh, her older of the two brothers uh, came and spent Sunday with us. And one of the things that just struck me was how much they... uh, they are, are, or how much I see their dad in them. Whether that be from the way they speak to some of their gestures or mannerisms, it's just the family resemblance 
is remarkable. And the reality is, whether it's genetic and some of it's just characteristics of, of how God has made us, or whether some of it's learned in the ways that we uh, communicate and, and uh, express ourselves, we bear a striking resemblance to our family. If you do not think this is true, just get a bunch of the Ogises together and see if you can tell them all apart. Like, there's sets of them that these two look alike and these two look alike. Like, there's striking family resemblances there. As we look today at these vital signs, one of the vital signs that we come to in 1 John is that we, we bear, as believers in Jesus, a striking resemblance to our Heavenly Father. This series in 1 John has been designed to help us take our spiritual pulse. I've said that there are two great tragedies that could possibly happen in the church. Not in the world, but in the church. The first great tragedy is that as you sit here this morning, you would think you are saved and you're not. And if through this or whatever it is, God reveals to you that you are not saved, do not count that as an unkindness from God. That is a great kindness of his. I think the greatest tragedy in the church is people who genuinely believe they're saved and then stand before the Lord after their death and, and say, Lord, Lord, did I not go to church and serve in Sunday school? And have him say, depart from me for I never knew you. The second great tragedy is that if you're sitting here today and you are genuinely saved, forgiven of your sins, and you spend your whole uh, Christian life wondering whether or not you are. Guessing. Maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not. Maybe you're like me, if you grew up in church and going to uh, camps, there's oftentimes uh, experiences that I call, I think my youth pastor growing up would call this, you know, it's fire insurance. Like you go to camp, somebody gives an invitation, you're like, I think I'm already saved, but I'm going up just to make sure, right? Like that's not the way we want to live our Christian lives. If you are not saved, I want you to know it so that you might be saved. And if you are saved, I want you to know it so you can get about kingdom work. But the great tragedy would be if we did not know what our spiritual condition was. And so as we have looked at these vital signs, these signs of spiritual life, we come today to number seven. Now, I want to review them really quickly in case you have not been here for all of that. Number one, we see that, uh, that, that people who have genuine spiritual life, have communion with Christ and with the Father. I don't mean communion as a corporate act at the table. I mean we have a real relationship with, with the Father and with the Son. If your spiritual life is entirely prayerless, that should concern you. Number two, uh, and, and entirely Bibleless, that should concern you. Number two, genuine believers have confession of sin. We understand that we're sinners, we understand the problem of sin, and we understand that we need to be forgiven of it. And so we confess, we say the same thing as God about our sin, that it's sin, that it's wrong, that it deserves his punishment. Number three, we have a commitment to God's word. That is not just to, uh, that, that, that this is God's word, but that we are to obey it. And really what we see today is an extension out of that. Number four, uh, genuine believers have compassion for other believers. I have heard way too often people say, you know, I love 
God. I love Jesus. I love the church. But it's people I have a problem with. That sends red flags in my mind every time I hear it. I've said this before. I'll probably say it again. But I think it's the perfect analogy. I'm going to give you an assignment. Go home today. Find a picture of your spouse. Then go to your spouse and say, I want you to know how much I love you. But this person in the picture, I just can't stand. And see how well that goes for you. I hope you have a comfortable couch, right? Like that's not going to go over well. We cannot come to God and say, Lord, I love you, but your image, not so much. It just doesn't work out that way. When we are genuinely saved and have affection for God, we have a love for his people as well. Which leads us to the next point, and that is that believers have a change of affection. That we don't love the things of the world anymore. We love the things of God. And we're in the process of of being taken out of this world as far as what we love. And lastly, last week we saw that, that genuine believers have a comprehension of the truth. Now, this is not an intellectual exercise. This is not to say that unbelievers are stupid and can't understand this, and believers are smart and can. What we're talking about is a moral comprehension, that, that the world, those who are not saved, are opposed to the truth of God, whereas believers understand that it is the truth of God because we've had our affections changed. And today, we're going to see number seven of nine, we're coming up to the end of this series, that believers have, have been uh, conformed to Christ, that we have a conformity to Christ. And so I want to ask three questions today regarding our family likeness. Three questions to ask of ourselves today. Now, before we do, I didn't say this first service, and I feel like I should have. There is going to be a tendency to feel maybe burdened as we ask these questions, to feel like failures. If you feel like a failure, rest assured, you are. And so am I. But hopefully, at the end of this sermon, I want to unburden that, okay? So if it feels a little heavy at first, please just bear with me. The first question we ask of ourselves is, do my actions show progress in obedience? Do my actions show progress in obedience? Look with me at verse 229. If you know that he is righteous, that is Christ, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The reality is that our Heavenly Father is holy and righteous. What do those terms mean? The term holy, uh, it means set apart. It means separated from. And so as believers are called holy, we're separated from the world, we're separated from sin. But as God is holy, man, this has incredible implications. God alone is creator. Everything else is created. And so in that way, he is separated from everything. God alone is self-sufficient. Think on that for a minute. God needs nothing. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us 
for, for anything but his own glory and for our good. But everything he needs, relationship, love, affection, worship, exists within the Trinity. He does not need us. He loves us. He wants us, and that's glorious. But in that way, he is separated from us, whereas we need him and and others. He is also holy in that he is separated from sin. If you've ever been told that there is nothing God can't do, you have been misinformed. Because scripture is clear that God can't lie along with other sins. God cannot sin. It's not just that what he does is okay. It's not that it's okay for him to lie, but not okay for us to lie. What would be sinful for us is often something that would be sinful for God as well. It's that he can't. He can't sin. He's too holy. He's too separated from that. And he is also righteous. That is simply to say he does what is right. To say God is holy is to say that he's separate from sin. To say that he's righteous is to say that he does what's right. And he is working that in us. Listen to Steve Lawson. The pursuit of holiness called sanctification, that is being uh, the process believers are in being made holy, is the lifelong process of the true believer in which he experiences a decreasing pattern of sin and an increasing pattern of righteousness. While we never become sinless, we do sin less. While we never become sinless, this side of heaven, we do sin less. The word righteous here in these verses means to live up to a standard. In fact, the root word of it is to judge. It is to be judged according to a standard. And in chapter 2, verse 28, we see, and 29, we see that that standard is Jesus. Whatever it means for Jesus to be holy is how we are to be holy. Whatever it means for him to be righteous is how we are to be righteous. And, we, and I don't think John here separates that idea of judgment. Because in, uh, in 2.28 he says, And now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus in scripture is always connected to judgment. The first time he came to die, the second time he comes to judge. The first time he came in weakness and humility, the second time he will come in power and authority. And and notice that it's kind of connected here. John sees this righteousness of Christ and this return of Christ as coming to judge us to that standard. Because if we don't live righteous lives, we might just have to shrink back from him. Now, The way Jesus judges believers is different than the way he judges the world. Because your sin and my sin has already been judged. It's already been declared wrong. The penalty has already been paid. Uh, God's wrath has already been poured out at the cross. And I don't believe in the judgment of believers that we'll stand before God and give an account for every single one of our sins. Because Jesus already gave an account for them. But we will be asked what we did with the grace that God gave us. And if we live our lives in love with the world, uh, unholy, unrighteous, we might, have re- just, we might just have reason to shrink back. 
But notice that he does not say that we would shrink back in fear at his coming. Because again, that wrath has been paid for. That wrath has been spent at the cross. But we might have to shrink back a little bit in shame when we've wasted our our lives this side of heaven and God says, what did you do with the grace that I gave you? We, We will be judged to a standard and that standard is righteousness. But if we have lived obediently, holy, righteous lives, we will have no reason to shrink back and we will not be ashamed. The reality of this point is this, though. Claiming to be a Christian does not make you a Christian. Like 80% of America claims to be a Christian. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. In fact, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a Cadillac. Abiding in Christ, verse 28, is the evidence of the faith that you are a Christian. It does not make you a Christian, only Jesus saves, but it is the uh, uh, evidence of our salvation. This is such a freeing thought to me, by the way, and here's why. Uh, The world around us that needs Jesus, that needs salvation, that needs forgiveness, you know what they don't need? Is they don't need our perfection. They don't need to see our perfection. In fact, if we spend our lives trying to present ourselves as perfect to the world, they just might miss the fact that we believe that only Christ can be perfect on our behalf. What they need to see is our progress. What they need to see is our repentance. What they need to see is that we take sin seriously. I think when we as as a church try and present ourselves as having it all together, not having any problems or struggles, that everything is good all the time and we're good all the time, that's when the world looks at us and says, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. Because they know it's not true, and we know it's not true. I've asked this before, but let's, let's test your memories. You know what to say to somebody when they say, oh, I don't want anything to do with the church. The church is full of hypocrites. Don't you? The answer is simple. You're right, and we've got room for one more. Come along. Because the reality is, is it's true of all of us. We are hypocrites but we're in progress. The world needs to see our progress, not our perfection. They need to see our repentance. When you do something wrong and somebody brings it to your attention, do you try to justify yourself? Does that inner lawyer well up inside of you? Mine is really good, by the way. I can justify everything I do really, really well. Or do you own it and, and, and confess it? And, and remember and remind yourself of God's forgiveness in Christ of it. Are you trying to show perfection in your life? Or does your life show progress in family resemblance? Number two, do my actions show a family likeness to God? Now this is similar, but I want us to see not only that we're, we're having progress in holiness, but we're having progress in Christ likeness. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, to what family you belong. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." Salvation is not a matter of intellectual assent, remember we talked about last week. 
It's a matter of our affections. And if we say we love Jesus, if we say we love the Father, if we say we love a holy and righteous God, but then all of our life is spent loving sin and sinfulness and unrighteousness, something is broken down there. If we love Jesus, then we should not love sin. Because Christ is righteous. Notice in verse 229, it is those that know he is righteous who practice righteousness. Listen to a few verses that that show us what it means that Jesus is righteous. Hebrews 7, 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, nor was, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Acts 3.14, but you denied the holy and righteous one. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ is righteous. And when we love him, that is, when we are saved, we must, of necessity, stop loving the things of the world. And so while our While the evidence of our salvation is progress, it's progress towards a a family likeness to God, a likeness to our Heavenly Father, a likeness to His Son. But I would warn you of this. The more you become like our Heavenly Father, the more the world will not understand you. The more you will not make sense to the world that we live in. They won't get it. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. As we are transformed into his image, a world that does not know Jesus, does not love Jesus, is not going to know us, is not going to love us. They won't recognize us because they don't recognize Jesus. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In Christ there is peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And so when the world doesn't recognize us, when they are opposed to us, take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Do your actions show a family likeness to God. And our third and final question, which is really maybe the most important one today, because it does no good to take a look at these and answer either yes or no if we don't understand, how do I become more like my Heavenly Father? How do I become more like my Heavenly Father? Look with me at chapter 3, verse 3, and we're going to see something that's uh, somewhat paradoxical, and I don't even fully understand how it works. I just understand in God's word that it's true. Uh, We're actually going to look at two, verses two and three. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, 
we shall be like him. So when Jesus comes back, when he appears, when we are judged and taken into glory, we can know for certain that we will be like him. Can you imagine that? Imagine people in this room without sin. That's hard to imagine, right? But it will be that way someday. It's hard to imagine what it will be like when we don't age, when we don't have pain or sickness or sadness or death, where no sin is present. What that is going to look like sounds good, but we don't fully understand. We don't fully know. We can't fully grasp what that is like. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because, here's the cause of why we're going to be like him. We shall see him as he is. The reality in scripture, and we're going to see this in a couple places this morning, is that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. And so the first way we become more like our Heavenly Father is to fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 says this, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That is the veil that makes it, that moral veil that makes us unable to understand the truth of God. When we're born again by the Holy Spirit of God, that veil is removed and all of a sudden we see the word of God and we go, it is true. When that veil, and that veil is removed when one turns to the Lord. Verse 17, now the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We'll look at that again in a second. Verse 18, here it is. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. How do we become like our heavenly father? We behold his glory. We, we gaze upon the beauty and glory and majesty of Christ. The reality is you become what you behold. If you behold your, your financial uh, portfolio, you might become like Scrooge greedy. If you behold sexual filth, you will become a pervert. But if you behold the Savior, you will become holy. How often do you gaze at the Savior? How often do you spend time beholding his glory? Maybe the better question is, where do you gaze at the Savior? Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's a reference to the Old Testament. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And where do we see his son? That's in the New Testament. It is in God's word that we behold the glory of Christ. How, how often do you behold God's word? How often do you behold the beauty and majesty and glory of Christ in Scripture? Hebrews 12, 2, we're told to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
The good news, by the way, about this, this is really, really good news. Uh, This is good news whether it comes to parenting. This is good news when it comes to evangelism. This is good news when it comes to our own spiritual life. And here's why it's good news. You don't have to, to make believers of your children or of your coworkers or of your neighbors. You don't have to convince them that everything is true. You don't have to be able to out argue the greatest skeptic. You don't have to answer every objection. You just invite people to behold Jesus. Show your children who he is over and over and over. And invite your neighbors and your friends and your family and your coworkers to just see who Jesus is. You don't have to have all the answers. Just tell them about who Jesus is. Because it's in beholding Jesus that we're transformed from one, glo- from one image of, of glory to another. It is the Spirit who removes the veil. We just say, hey, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Here's who he is. Secondly, we live in, so firstly, we behold Jesus. Secondly, we live into the freedom that we've been given in God. Notice that in, again, in in 2 Corinthians 3.16, we're told that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, this is where being an American really does great disservice to our understanding of freedom. Now, I'm not anti-American at all. I love the good old U.S. of A. And I am grateful to God that we get to live in such a place where we can worship freely. And I pray regularly that we would be able to live in this place quiet and peaceful and evangelical lives. But in America, we learn very, very early on that freedom is a a complete lack of restraint. It is the opportunity to do anything I want. And we hear oftentimes when somebody tries to restrict our wills, we say, this is a free country. You hear it on the playground very early on. It's a free country. I can do what I want. And in other words, don't tell me what to do. But the reality is that Scripture never ever, anywhere, describes people as free. Nowhere. Well, wait a minute, Logan, you just said I had freedom. What do you mean by that? Look with me at Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Now, let me catch you up on Paul's argument up to this point. Up to this point, he's saying that we as believers have been set free from the law. That's what he's saying here. But here's here's kind of the pattern of things that had worked itself out in the church at Rome. Okay, I'm a sinner. I have violated God's law. And God is gracious and merciful, abounding in love and mercy. And so the fact that God is gracious and merciful is glorifying to him. That's true. We're tracking with the Romans up to this point. But since God is glorified in his mercy, I should sin more. Here's where everything breaks down. Because the more I sin, the more God is merciful. And the more God is merciful, the better he looks. And so I'm going to sin like crazy so that God looks merciful. And Paul says, are we to sin? No, by no means. Why not? Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death 
or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In other other words, you are a slave to whatever you behold. And there's a lot of help out there in the world that attempts to get people free from their slavery. Slavery to alcohol, slavery to drugs, slavery to spending, slavery to money, slavery to sex, slavery to sin, slavery to food. Typically, if I can be honest, if those programs don't focus on the gospel, what they do is invite us to trade one form of slavery for another. Because we're a slave to whatever we present ourselves to. Romans, uh, Paul continues here in Romans 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The reality is we're all slaves. We're all servants of something. Either we can, we can behold sin and be enslaved to it, which leads to death, or we can behold Christ and be enslaved to him and to righteousness, with, which leads to life. But either way, we're going to be enslaved to whatever we behold. And so the way a Christian lives into freedom is not the absolute ability to do whatever I want, but the freedom to no longer present myself as, as a slave to sin and rather instead present myself as a slave to God. No matter what, in God's economy, you're a slave. But in Christ, we have the freedom to choose what we present ourselves uh, to be slaves in. And thirdly, and I'm just going to admit this is out of style today. But historically, the church has said the primary way that God grows his people is through ordinary means of grace. We, uh, we, We really have a love and a desire for the spectacular. We want God to do big things with no hard work. But the reality is that God usually does big things in our life when we are faithful to lots and lots of little things through what the church has called ordinary means of grace. And there are three primary ordinary means of grace that God has given us. Number one, we've already referenced this, it's it's just scripture reading. If you're not reading God's word, you're not beholding the Savior. You've got to be in God's word. Second is prayer. Second is prayer. In God's word, God speaks to us. In prayer, we speak to God. And thirdly, regular fellowship in the local church. None of these things are big. But when we're faithful to them, God does extraordinary things in these really, really ordinary ways. Verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 5, we're told this. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. He took away our sins. He he didn't leave us in them. He took them away. And he did so by dying. The eternal, omnipotent creator of heaven and earth became one of us. That he might take our sin and absorb God's wrath and die in our place, and rise again, and offer us life through faith. How can we then be comfortable with that for which he died? One final note. Here's my final thought, and this is 
the hopefully unburdening moment. This was a symphony, I would want this to be the final note. If it's a fine dining experience, this is your final taste. Here it is. None of this requires you to be perfect. None of it. None of it requires, to be, requires you to be perfect. Jesus did that. And only Jesus can do that. So what does it require? Well, notice how many times in this text we see the word practice. I have, them, uh, I have a black square around each one. And I'll just read them to you quickly. 229. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 3-4. Whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. This isn't about our perfection. It's about our progress. It's about what's being practiced in our lives. The evidence of salvation in your life today is not your perfection. And if you're looking to your perfection to be the reason why you're saved or acceptable to God, you're barking up the wrong tree. Only Jesus can do that. This is not about our perfection. This is about our progress in, in, in becoming who God is making us to be. So the question is not whether you're sinless. The question is, is, what, is God working in me a greater desire to sin less? This is the difference between being righteous, and this is what we call, uh, what, what the authors in Scripture call justification. This is like a judge in a courtroom declaring not guilty. When, when God takes the righteousness of, a, of Christ and applies it to our account, he accredits it to us as righteousness, we are immediately and instantly in God's kingdom declared not guilty. And so when we trust Christ, his death, his resurrection, his life, we're declared righteous. Positionally, we're perfect before God. Sinless. Justified. Boom. Not guilty. The gavel has dropped. That's being righteous. But what John is talking about here is practicing righteousness. That is sanctification. That is being made more and more into the image of our family, our father, God, our brother, Jesus. And, and the Spirit of God is the one doing that in us. Here's why this is good news. You don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus. In fact, if you're waiting to be perfect to come to Jesus, you never will. God isn't inviting perfect people to come to him. He's inviting us to come to the perfect Savior who was perfect on our behalf. You don't have to clean up your life to come to Jesus. You can't do that. He wants your dirty, filthy, broken life, and he wants to help you clean it up. He doesn't want you to fix yourself to come to him. He wants to do that in you. You don't have to be good enough. You never will be. He was good enough 
in, in our place. You don't have to earn it. You can't. He earned it for us by his perfection and death and resurrection. You don't have to earn it. You never will. Notice the motivating factor of God's redemption in our lives is not that we deserved it, but that God loved us. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It is not our perfection. It is not our progress. It is not our holiness. It is not our cleanness. It is not our niceness. It is not anything that motivates God to redeem us but his own love. And there is nobody who is too much of a sinner to be saved by Christ. All we have to do is receive Christ's righteousness from the Father in faith and trust. Oh, I hope you have trusted in him and not yourself. I pray that if you have, you are showing others that they can trust him, not by your perfection, but by your progress. He doesn't need your perfection. He wants to do that in us as we behold his glory and are transformed from one image of glory to another. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us. and You have sent your son to be righteous where we could not, to die in our place though he did not deserve it to rise again from the grave when we are powerless to do so, and that through faith you count his righteousness to us. Lord, may those of us here who have trusted in you, may we be absolutely certain of our salvation, and may we behold the glory of Christ that we might be transformed into his image. And may we be about the work of inviting others to to behold his glory as well, that they might be saved, that they might see his perfection. May we never think that anybody is too far gone or too sinful to be saved by you and brought into your redeeming grace. Lord, use us as instruments in the world to call people to yourself, to, to show them Jesus, that they might believe and repent and be saved. Lord, may we lean into the ordinary means of grace And see you do extraordinary things in and for and through us. And may it all be to your glory. In Jesus' name.